You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1907th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 1st of December. The editor of this edition is Liz Roberts, the producer is Pat Needham and your readers are Nick Gain and Jill Gain. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Decision on state-of-the-art West Suffolk Hospital is due this week. MP Matt Hancock to meet voters after TV trials in Jungle. Questions over town disability improvements. Lights go on to mark the start of town's magical Christmas. OK, a decision on state-of-the-art West Suffolk Hospital is due this week. West Suffolk Council will decide whether to grant planning permission to build a new multi-million pound state-of-the-art West Suffolk Hospital. If planning permission is granted, the new hospital is projected to be built by 2030 as part of the government's new hospitals programme. The plans detail that the new hospital would be created in a mature parkland setting covering an area of up to 100,000 square metres, plus a multi-storey car park, while Hardwick Manor will be converted for hospital uses. The current main hospital, which opened in the early 1970s and was built with now crumbling reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, will be demolished once the new facilities are ready. However, some facilities on the Hardwick Lane site will stay. The Catering Block, the Macmillan Unit, Quince House, Education Centre, Wedgwood House, Day Surgery Unit and Eye Treatment Centre, Staff Accommodation, Busy Bees Nursery and St Nicholas Hospice. In the agenda document for the meeting, it is noted that the most significant amendment to the application since it was first submitted is the replacement of the proposed new roundabouts with a light control junction in response to safety concerns raised by Suffolk County Council highways. Other changes include reducing where possible the maximum heights of the new hospital and the introduction of an outside public bus interchange. Following a recommendation that the application be refused in August, Berry Snedman's Town Council has, as of this month, now recommended the application for approval. However, it added that councillors raised transport concerns, including the consideration of a park and ride facility, and seek assurances that part of the, of the current site will not be sold for redevelopment. Horringer cum Ickworth Parish Council has objected to the application, raising safety concerns about the main construction compound access. Though the Suffolk County Council Highway Authority submitted an objection to the application in May, as it did not prioritise the promotion of sustainable transport, it has now recommended the amend, amended application as acceptable, subject to the recommended highway conditions. The construction and demolition stage is estimated to cost at least £648 million and would last three to five years and employ hundreds of people. 
Meanwhile, objections were raised over the removal of a helipad from the original scheme. The trust withdrew the helipad as it would be subject to a separate business case. The Secretary of State for Business has said West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock should have been in Parliament representing his constituents following his controversial appearance in ITV show I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Mr Hancock finished third in the show's final on Sunday behind the winner, England footballer Jill Scott and second-placed actor Owen Warner. His participation meant spending three weeks in Australia where the show is filmed, which prevented him from being present in Parliament for debates. A week after he left the Australian jungle, West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock will be facing the reaction of his constituents this weekend. He's due to meet voters at pre-booked surgeries, as well as taking part in a House of Commons debate on dyslexia on Friday. Mr Hancock is also due to meet Conservative Chief Whip Simon Hart to find out how long he is likely to be left on the parliamentary naughty step before being let back into the fold. He is currently on his way back from Australia after finishing third in ITV's I'm a Celebrity series but could be about to endure an ordeal equal to any that he took part in during the programme. There have been many calls for him to stand down from Parliament after taking part in the programme which is rumoured to have paid him up to £400,000. On Monday, Newmarket Town Council agreed a motion to write to the MP calling on his resignation. This follows Haverhill Town Council earlier this month. Mr Hancock has said some of his fee will be donated to the West Suffolk Hospice and the total payment will be registered with the Parliamentary Standards Office. He has insisted that he plans to stay in politics despite his success in the show and suggestions that he might want to follow in the steps of Michael Portillo and Ed Balls and forge a new career in television. A spokesman for Mr Hancock said he was determined to return to the political fray and would be a keen supporter of Rishi Sunak in the House of Commons. He lost the Conservative whip, which meant he was suspended from the Parliamentary Party, but remains a Tory party member. With crucial votes facing the Prime Minister in the new year and several backbench Tories indicating they may rebel in these votes, the temptation to reinstate the someone who is known to be loyal to the PM might be impossible to resist. Nadine Dorries had the whip withdrawn when she took part in the show in 2012 and it took her six months to return to the fold. But she had a reputation as a rebel against the David Cameron-led coalition government and Mr Hancock might find it easier to return to favour. But first, Mr Hancock will be facing his voters. And because of security concerns, no details of the surgeries are being published. Questions over town disability improvements. How will funding to improve disabled access to West Suffolk be spent? That is the question being asked by Barry St Edmunds Mobility Scooter user after encountering access problems across the town. In May, Peter Fuller of Vinery Road raised several issues in the Bravery Press, including vehicles parked on pavements, hedges encroaching onto the highway, the lack of dropped curbs, vehicles parked across dropped curbs, the deteriorating condition of footpaths through lack of maintenance, an increasing amount of advertising material, tables and chairs and other items from businesses being placed on pavements. He said little had changed since, other than a pothole outside Weatherspoons being filled in. 
On November the 8th, West Suffolk Council's Cabinet agreed £230,000 of funding for improvements to town centres and high streets, including better accessibility for disabled people. Peter said, However, the Cabinet papers contain no breakdown of how much of this funding will be spent on improving accessibility for disabled people or on what schemes or when it is to be spent. I fear the funding will be too little and spread too thinly to adequately resolve pressing problems that merit more than a token piecemeal solution. A West Suffolk Council spokesman said once the government funding was received, it would launch a bidding round for bids and town councils to propose town centre improvements proposals, which could include improvements for disabled access. He added that if vehicles were parked on a pavement and waiting restrictions were in place, or a vehicle was parked across a dropped curb, its civil parking enforcement team could take action if they come across it on a patrol or if it was reported. Meanwhile, Berry Free Press reader Michael Torrowed got in touch about the state of cobbles along the top of Whiting Street and Abbeygate Street. He said the area, about a square metre in all, caused a man to fall flat on his face. A spokeswoman for Suffolk Highways said the cobbles had been inspected and would be repaired within the next two weeks. Christmas in Bury St Edmunds has officially begun after lights were switched on in the town centre and families got to meet Santa and Paddington. The Christmas light event took place on Thursday the 17th of November and like last year, the lights were turned on between 3pm and 8pm to avoid large crowds gathering in one area. Mark Cordell, Chief Executive of our Bury St Edmunds Business Improvement District, described the light switch on event as a huge success with large numbers of people visiting the town centre after 5pm. New Christmas lights, which prove popular the shoppers, have been installed for 2022 and can be found in St John's Street on the side of Cafe Nero on Cornhill and across Central Walk. Mr Cordell said, Despite scouring weather forecasts, we couldn't foresee the rain going away, even though the gusts of wind remained. We were absolutely delighted it did, and it was wonderful to see so many families in our town, to such an extent that the event didn't close until 8pm, its scheduled time. Unfortunately, some of the storeholders decided not to stay at the event due to the weather. Entertainment on the stage also had to be cancelled. Mr Cordell said, The storeholders who remained had a great day in the end, with Nathan from Peck in St John Street having to go back to the shop to restock. Paddington Bear and Santa Claus were the most popular guests on the evening, with the carol singers on Angel Hill attracting regular crowds and being visited by Spider-Man. Undeterred by the windy weather, families also flocked to the fun fair, which was busy throughout the event. The Christmas light switch-on was paid for by town centre businesses with the aim of making Bury as welcoming for residents and businesses as possible. The Thursday evening also marked the start of the Bury St Edmunds weekend light spectacular in the Abbey Gardens. On the opening night of the light spectacular, crowds marvelled as the Norman Tower was transformed into a canvas telling the story of Bury's fallen abbey. The light spectacular, which ran until Sunday, celebrated the 1000th anniversary of the Abbey of St Edmund. Ahead of more festive events in the town, Councillor Susan Glossop, Cabinet Member for Growth at West Suffolk Council, said, 
Bury St Edmunds is a wonderful place throughout the year, but it is particularly magical at Christmas and there are lots of festive fun for people of all ages to enjoy. Like last year, this Christmas in Bury St Edmunds has been created by several partners to deliver events over several days in the run-up to Christmas for our communities and businesses. A heroic dog with a traumatic past is up for a top award after raising the alarm when he sensed a school pupil was about to have an epileptic fit. Chance, who works with pupils with additional needs alongside his owner, Sam Lee MacLeod, was at Bodisham Village College when he alerted the Year 11 pupil that something was wrong. Within minutes, she slumped to the floor and had an epileptic fit, but Chance's intervention gave her some warning, which allowed her to lay down rather than fall. Following the incident in May, her family nominated him for the Animal Star Awards as Animal Hero of the Year, with a virtual ceremony which was held on Saturday, November 26th. Mrs Lee MacLeod, who is an animal-assisted teacher and takes chance to spend time with children at West Suffolk Hospital as a Pets as Therapy volunteer, said, I'm just so proud of him. I think he deserves it, as he's such a lovely dog. Chance, a German Spitz, who is about four years old, is a rescue dog from the Serbia-Bosnia border. When he arrived at Mrs Lee MacLeod's Islam home 18 months ago, he had injuries consistent with a shockwave from an explosive device and still has PTSD. Mrs Lee MacLeod, 60, said she understood the explosive device from the Bosnian War was found during demolition works and it is believed Chance's owner trod on it and died, with Chance caught in the blast. Originally a wedding dress designer, she became a teacher in 2001 after supporting her son Daniel, who has autism, during his school years. She entered specialist education about 10 years ago. After losing her job due to the pandemic, she worked as a special educational needs coordinator in Beck Row and later launched her own alternative provision as a specialist teacher with her dog. Mrs Lee MacLeod has volunteered with Chance every Monday morning since August on the Rainbow Ward at West Suffolk Hospital. She said, The minute you bring him into the building, everybody wants to make a fuss. We spend time with some of the staff who need support, but also spend time with any patients. He loves it. He's so gentle with the children when they're upset and he calms them down. A Ukrainian mother has spoken of her stress at facing homelessness after she felt she was given short notice to leave her host property. Ludmilla Sisoliatina, 49, and her son Artem, 10, have been living in Bury St Edmunds since July, attending school, working and building friendships in the town but now they could be made homeless by the end of this month or be moved to another town altogether. For Lude Miller, not knowing where they're going to live has had an impact on her mental health as well as her job prospects. Speaking through a translator, she said, I don't see any way out. I have turned to all churches and cathedrals and posted this information to everyone I know to spread the word. I have even turned to the homeless centre. I'm upset because finally my son is settled at school. It's just pure stress. I was scared. My son was crying non-stop. In February, Ludmilla and her son left their home in Neepro 
when the shelling of the city increased. She had to leave her husband behind. They left on an overcrowded train and then walked for three days to the Polish border. They lived in refugee camps in Poland until a family allowed them to stay at their farm while they waited for their UK visas to be granted. Suffolk County Council has found Ludmilla a host family in Woodbridge, but that would mean uprooting her son. I would need to start from scratch, she said. I looked it up on the map and it's one hour drive by car and I cannot commute to take my son to Bury. I'm packing my stuff and I'll have to go onto the streets. I'm ready to buy a tent. Ludmilla and her son are not alone. According to the local network of Ukrainians living in Bury, there are 15 families in urgent need of housing. Ukrainian refugee Larissa Taranenko, who has been translating for other Ukrainians, said, We plead with local families, please open your doors at least for another six months. Councillor Bobby Bennett, Cabinet Member for Equality and Communities at Suffolk County Council, said, Our preference is to rematch families in areas where they are already living and have already made links within the community. However, our ability to do this is limited by the number of hosts that have come forward and we are in particular need of new hosts in the Bury St Edmunds area. The first two crane chicks ever successfully raised on the Norfolk, sorry, the Suffolk coast have now left for their warmer winter home. Cranes successfully raised two chicks on RSPB Snape Wetlands Nature Reserve earlier this year. They are the first ever recorded pair to fledge young on the county's coast. The 202-acre wetland near Snape Maltings is relatively new, with initial work to convert dry grassland into wetland and reed bed starting in 2008 and completed in 2014. Ponds and pools were excavated and water levels were controlled to sculpt and create the wetland. Since that time, RSPB Snape Wetlands has already attracted breeding bittern, marsh harrier and bearded tit, as well as providing new habitat for mammals such as otter and water vole. The pair of cranes that successfully raised two chicks on the reserve this summer have attempted to nest in the wetland for two years previously. However, they had not been able to fledge young. The reserve still has a lot of time to, to develop and is very much a work in progress as it becomes established. However, in partnership with the Environment Agency, the reserve is already teeming with wildlife. The crane is a rare breeder in Britain, with only around 65 pairs breeding each year. Originally returning to the Norfolk Broads in 1979, numbers are now steadily increasing. They can often be seen in Fenland reserves, including Lackford Lakes and Lakenheath Fen in the west of Suffolk. Cranes need wetland to breed in, away from disturbance and with protection from predators. They make a nest in open water, often in emerging vegetation. After the eggs hatch, the family typically look for food near to the nest site for several weeks, but as the chicks get older, they roam, they roam further afield. Aaron Howe, RSPB site manager for the South Suffolk coast, said... To have cranes successfully breed and fledge on the Suffolk coast for the first time and for it to be on our relatively new Snape Wetlands Reserve is a great achievement. We hope this kick-starts the population of cranes on the Suffolk coast and they become more widespread within the area of outstanding natural beauty. 
The cranes fledged the nest back in August, but because these birds are very susceptible to disturbance by people, we've waited until the family had time to grow and leave the site for the winter before shouting about how amazing this moment is. We will continue to manage the reserve's wetlands to encourage more cranes to breed here, hopefully next year and beyond, and we thank the Environment Agency for their continued support. Residents in one of Suffolk's fastest-growing communities want to turn their redundant railway station buildings into a thriving community hub. Thurston is on the line from Ipswich to Cambridge and is a few miles outside Bury St Edmunds. It is served by about one train an hour for most of the day. Its station dates from Victorian times and is Grade 2 listed, but the buildings are boarded up and have not been used for decades. Now a local group, Community Action for Thurston Station, known as CATS, has been formed to try to get it restored and for a new use to be found for the building. It was built in 1846 and designed in a Jacobean style by Frederick Barnes, who designed many stations in Suffolk, including Woodbridge, Bury St Edmunds and Stowmarket. Liz McGregor, from CATS, said ideally they would like to see the top of the building reopened as a waiting room for the platform. The station was built on a slight embankment, but had been warned that would probably not be possible. She said, the station is very important for us. Thurston has a population of nearly 4,000, but is expected to grow to 7,000 over the next few years, and having a station is a key selling point for us. The building hasn't been used for years, but the station is right in the heart of Thurston and is very near a large school. It is very important to us and it would be good to see some use made of it. About one hour train an hour stops at Thurston on the route from Ipswich to Cambridge and Peterborough and the village has become popular with commuters heading to jobs in Cambridge where the station is very close to the main business district. In the year before the first Covid lockdown, more than 70,000 passengers used the station. That figure could double as the population of Thurston rises. Miss McGregor said talks with Greater Anglia about finding a tenant had been amicable, but it was clear the rail company would expect any tenant to carry out work needed to make it usable. She said, the fabric of the building is okay, I think the roof is fine, but they don't have the money to do any work there. Her group has been in touch with Mid-Suffolk Council and charities including the YMCA to ask about the possibility of taking on the building but the cost of restoration remains an issue. They have also been in touch with Network Rail about replacing the pedestrian crossing over the tracks, which is currently the only way of getting from one platform to the other, with several trains an hour using the line, this is potentially dangerous. Transport, health and infrastructure were among the top concerns raised with comedian Adam Hills as he spoke to residents in Milton Hall on Saturday. The Australian host of The Last Leg held a surgery in the town in place of Matt Hancock, who was appearing on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Mr Hancock came in for criticism on Saturday, but he has proved to be one of the public's favourite campers and has avoided the daily evictions from the jungle. This week saw him take part in many trials, including an anagram-themed challenge that tested his dyslexia. Hundreds were in Milden Hall to vent their frustrations, take selfies or just say hello. Mr Hills said he was unsure what impact his actions could have, 
but hoped he could allay people's concerns or help in some way. Representatives from the National Educational Union wanted to highlight the risks to schools that future education cuts could pose, estimating local schools could lose up to £150,000, which could affect SEND children in particular. A spokesperson for Mr Hancock has previously said the MP would make a donation to St Nicholas Hospice Care and other causes supporting dyslexia, as well as catching up with constituents when he returned. Several key concerns, ranging from street lighting to a lack of infrastructure in Mildenhall and Newmarket, were brought to the comedian by local leaders, some of whom felt Mr Hancock did not properly represent the people there. Access to the Mildenhall hub and fears of accidents in the area, a lack of GPs, and even the nearby Sunica plants were also hot on residents' lips. Mr Hills noted that by far the biggest concerns were medical and transport woes, as well as social care. While he didn't know to what extent he could aid residents, he noticed some places where he could help out. He was invited He has invited Mr Hancock onto the the last leg to deliver residents' concerns to him personally. He said some residents wished there were more activities for young people, which means we could set up events in the town. I used to be a tennis coach, so I could teach youngsters tennis. We could also come out and broadcast World Cup games to bring the community together. The main thing I found today is that people just want someone to listen to their concerns. They feel they are not being properly represented. Residents don't expect every single issue to be addressed. They just want an MP who visits them and hears their concerns, not one who's on the other side of the world for a TV show. He noted, If nothing else, I hope I've encouraged Mr Hancock to visit the town and speak to people. The team at a garden on the outskirts of Veris and Devlin's are celebrating after scooping a prestigious Royal Horticultural Society, RHS, award for the second year run. Perennials, Fuller's Mill Garden in West Stowe, won the RHS Partner Garden of the Year for the Midlands and East of England. The garden, on the banks of the River Lark, was voted for by visitors and supporters who have described it as a truly magical and very special garden, and a garden begging one to return. Annie Delbridge, head gardener, said, We're delighted to retain our title and extremely proud to know that our visitors love the garden as much as we do. Thank you to all who voted for us. We look forward to welcoming new and regular visitors to the garden for another year. Fuller's Mill is described as a quiet waterside oasis and is managed by Perennial, a charity that helps people in horticulture. The garden was transformed by Bernard Tickner, MBE, from a rough scrub and woodland and impresses visitors with its unusual collection of shrubs, perennials and lilies. Peter Newman, chief executive at Perennial, said, I am thrilled that Fuller's Mill, for the second year running, has been voted as the RHS Partner Garden of the Year in the Midlands and east of England. The late Bernard Tickner and his wife Bess would be so pleased to know that their beautiful and tranquil creation which is so skilfully maintained by head gardener Annie Delbridge and her team of staff and volunteers, continues to delight garden and plant lovers. One visitor who voted for the garden said, A truly magical and very special garden in a most inspiring setting, 
every corner of which reflects the passion and dedication of those who work to maintain and develop it. Fuller's Mill is a place to find peace and tranquillity amongst an array of interesting plants at any time of the year. Its atmosphere is truly unique, simply a gardener's paradise. This winter, Fuller's Mill will be open on Saturdays until December the 17th between 11am and 4pm. The garden then reopen in February 2023 for its special snowdrop opening. Completing 3,000 push-ups in one month has been no trouble for one 10-year-old from Suffolk, even while on a holiday in Thailand. Roman Ward from Stowmarket is nearing the end of his challenge to complete 3,000 push-ups in November for Teenage Cancer Trust. He has been trying to do 100 push-ups every day in stints of between 25 and 30 at a time. Throughout the challenge, he has been supported by friends from school, his rugby team, brother Rocky and dad Gareth, and has even done push-ups in Thailand. Roman's mum, Amber, said he saw it on Facebook being advertised and he just asked whether he could do it and it has pushed him, but he has done well. His auntie had cancer and he wanted to do the challenge just to raise awareness for teenage cancer. It is definitely getting the word out. His school put it in their newsletter and his rugby club put it out on their sites. So it is amazing what he is doing. He has improved so much over the month. To do 100 every day is very impressive. And sometimes he has had to catch up, so has had to do more than 100. It has been tough though. He has had to fit it in around school and the flights to and from Thailand. But he has kept on track and we are really proud. It has been fun as well for him. He has done push-ups while we were away at the airport and in some great places, so it's been good. So far, Roman has raised around £550 for Teenage Cancer Trust. Mrs Ward said, We are shocked at how much he has raised just from seeing an advert and thinking he could do that. It is amazing how well he is doing and how much support he has had from people as well as great. Primark has announced it will be opening a new store in the former Debenhams building in Bury St Edmunds. The fashion retailer is expected to be open by the end of 2023 and will occupy the top two floors of the former flagship Debenhams store at the Ark Shopping Centre. The 33,000 square foot new store located in the Ark will create about 90 jobs for local people. The Debenham Bury St Edmunds store, which was the last standing in Suffolk, closed down in May last year. Since 2019, a social media group called Primark for Bury St Edmunds has been running on Facebook, with many people hoping for the retailer to join the town. Philippa Nibbs, Primark UK Director of Sales for London and the South East, said, We know people in Bury St Edmunds have been calling for a local Primark for a while now, so we're delighted to finally be able to confirm our plans for the town. We're really looking forward to becoming a part of this great community and bringing new and existing customers the Primark products they love. Alan Hassel, ARC Centre Manager, added, There has been much discussion and excitement amongst the local community as to the future of our previous Debenhams unit at ARC Shopping Centre. The addition of Primark is a marvellous opportunity for Bury St Edmunds and one I'm sure our shoppers will be thrilled to receive. We are excited to monitor the forecasted positive impact this new store will have on the shopping centre and town of Bury St Edmunds, 
and look forward to announcing further developments soon. The basement floor of the former Debenhams has been reserved for another addition to the Ark Shopping Centre. In August, plans for a new cinema in the basement of the landmark building were approved. Berry WM Unit Trust plans for an everyman cinema, including four screens and a smaller private hire screen with a total of 306 seats, were approved by West Suffolk Council on August the 19th. The community is rounding off a series of celebrations marking 1,000 years since the establishment of the Abbey of St Edmund, and a special guest was at hand to help. Sunday, November 20th, was St Edmund's Day, commemorating the saint after which Bury St Edmunds is named. To mark the occasion, David Gork, the former Lord Chancellor, visited St Edmundsbury Cathedral on Saturday to speak in honour of the Abbey. In his Edmund Lecture, Mr Gork emphasised the importance of British institutions and the rule of law. Also on Saturday, the Right Reverend Martin Seeley, Bishop of St Edmundsbury in Ipswich, planted a tree in the Remembrance Garden in the Cathedral's grounds. This was part of the Queen's Green Canopy Scheme, a nationwide initiative celebrating the legacy of Elizabeth II. The Reverend Philip Banks, the Canon Precentor of St Edmundsbury, said, We are delighted to contribute to the Queen's Green Canopy Initiative here at the Cathedral as part of our Abbey 1000 celebrations. We know that the Remembrance Garden is a very special place to so many people and this home oak will enhance the enjoyment and atmosphere in this part of the Cathedral for many generations to come. Meanwhile, the Lord Lieutenant of Suffolk, Claire Fitzroy, joined local dignitaries and members of the Abbey 1000 Committee for a civic mass at St Edmund's Catholic Church. A homily was delivered by Canon David Bagstaff and 80 guests were able to enjoy a traditional ale stew meal in the church crypt. Agneshku Proclidigo presented her paintings of Catholic churches in the area, while Clint Rose showed off a sign featuring the head of St Edmund. Mr Rose's work was subsequently granted to Father Dick White as a gift. Giant murals were unveiled in Bury St Edmunds on Sunday, St Edmunds Day, as part of the Abbey 1000 celebrations. Created by artist Louise Gridley and each measuring 13 square metres, the sculptural murals were designed with a then and now theme. The first panel depicts the story of St Edmund, while the second showcases key landmarks from the town as it is today. Louise designed the mural while staff and students from Abbeygate Sixth Form College, St Benedict's Catholic School, One Sixth Form College and Thurston Community College contributed to help realise the design. Louise said, It was important to me that young people within our community were involved in the making of the work as it will be their legacy gift to future generations. A couple who discovered a pearl in an oyster shell while visiting a Suffolk village had described how the one in 10,000 chance event was like winning the lottery. Joe Beveridge, 33, and his partner Emiliana Amarita, 26, were spending a weekend away in Orford and decided to get some oysters and fish for their evening meal from seafood restaurant and shop Pinnies of Orford in Key Street. However, as Emiliana was eating her oyster, 
she noticed what she thought was a bit of grit in her mouth, only to discover the precious white gemstone, which is created by the oyster as a defence against parasites. Depending on their quality, natural pearls can be worth up to millions of pounds, but Mr Beveridge said he intended to turn it into a new necklace for Emiliana. He said, Emmy, my partner, discovered the pearl as she was eating the oyster. She thought it was a bit of grit and almost swallowed it. But luckily, we realised before she did. We were in shock. I wasn't aware you could find pearls and oysters over the counter. But we were also struck by how beautiful it was. The colour is incredible. It's like winning the lottery. The oyster was one of six the couples had bought from Pinney's for £1.49 each. And Mr Beveridge said he had sourced a jeweller who will use the pearl as part of a necklace chain, something to memorialise the moment. Bill Pinney, owner of Pinney's of Orford, said the oysters are farmed on site and then either sold in the shop, served in the restaurant called Butley Orford Oysters, or sold to other restaurants in the area and London. He said, it's quite unusual, but you do occasionally find them. It has happened a few times, I would say, with oysters that we produce. He added, the most valuable pearls typically come from oysters bred in the Indian Ocean. A Suffolk village pub is running a Christmas appeal, encouraging the community to donate hamper bags containing festive foods to help people in need. The Cock Horse Inn at Lavenham has set up Operation Christmas Community Pantry to encourage donations of essentials, including crackers, festive chocolate, tinned vegetables, mince pies, tinned meat, Christmas pudding, custard and yule log, among other items. Amanda Poole, the pub's co-owner, said donations will continue to be taken until December the 13th. She added, this is then sorted and processed into hamper bags that families and individuals can collect. This way they're collecting one whole bag with everything inside, which will hopefully make their Christmas days a little more comfortable without the burden of the cost. Given the crisis and tough decisions every family is facing at the moment, I'm hoping it will be a small weight off shoulders. As it stands, the pub is supporting 50 families and individuals in what is the first year of running Operation Christmas Community Pantry and donations will be collected December the 23rd and 24th. The hampers are assembled in a pop-up kitchen to the side of the pub and a web page has been established which provides information on how people can donate or collect donations while a completely anonymous link on the page provides details of how many families will want to collect hampers. Donations can be collected anonymously from the pop-up kitchen. As well as the hampers, the pub has also been involved with other charity projects, including Operation Christmas Child, where shoeboxes are filled with items for children in need around the world, with some donations going to Ukraine this year following the Russian invasion in February. In addition, the pub has organised a World Cup sweepstake to raise money for East Anglia Children's Hospice and a North Pole postbox has been set up where children can post letters to Santa. The pub also provides hot dinners for Lavenham Preschool and will be providing a Christmas meal for the school staff and pupils this year. And now for some letters. This one is from Mark Sargentson from Earl Soham. I read with great interest the opinion article by Terry Hunt about planned cuts to BBC Radio Suffolk in your newspaper on November 17th. In 2008, 
I took a seven-week sabbatical to walk the 900-kilometre GR10 trail, following the length of the Pyrenees from the Atlantic to Mediterranean. I raised £17,000 for cancer campaign in Suffolk from the very generous sponsors who supported me during this trek. This would not have been possible without the extensive publicity given to my efforts by Terry, then editor of the East Anglian Daily Times, and Leslie Dolphin at BBC Radio Suffolk. Before the walk, Leslie invited me to be her sofa guest, which gave me a wonderful opportunity to explain what I was doing and who I was raising money for. During my walk, I had a regular telephone call from Leslie during her afternoon programme so that I could update listeners live on on aid of my progress. It brings tears to my eyes to remember how kind people were and the extent to which they got behind supporting a vital charity. This was a Suffolk story about the fundraising for a Suffolk cancer charity. If the planned cuts and rationalising of BBC Radio Suffolk and other local BBC radio stations take place, this will have a disastrous impact and so many levels of our local communities. Under the proposed BBC restructuring, I do not believe that there would be a place for the local level of campaigning support and publicity that my walk was given. Suffolk would be a poorer place and most importantly, cash-strapped charities would have less of a voice in an exceptionally difficult economic climate. I have copied this letter to Tim Davey the Director-General of the BBC, and implore him to rethink. Graham Day from Stowmarket writes, How pleased I was to see Ted Welford's excellent article on 50 years of the Fort Fiesta. The paucity of any articles in much of the media has fortunately been rectified and for me has jogged my memory. Sadly for me, the demise of the Fiesta was not unexpected. In an era when homogenous so-called SUVs, sports utility vehicles, a strange idea, are being produced, the Fiesta represented an age when car names often evoke dreams of sunnier climes and happy times. During my time working at Bayburg Council in the 1970s, several of us car shared so that we would only take our cars in once or twice a week. One of the members of the group was my boss, the late Rob Salmon. Rob had taken me into work in 1974 in his Austin Maxi. However, the Maxi was sometimes beset by problems, the most serious being a jammed accelerator when driving on the motorway after a weekend trip to Chester. After this, Rob was looking for a new car and Ford launched their new baby. He purchased one when launched in 1976. The car regularly carried me safely and my colleagues to work until I left for Norfolk in 1979. I would have loved a Fiesta XR2, but never ever got around to owning one. A sad passing of an iconic vehicle, but an excellent article bringing forward happy memories. Thank you, Ted. This letter is from Audrey Naylor of Ipswich. The gov.uk website says Boris Johnson and Grant Shapps launched a £3 billion bus revolution in 2020. One of the main aims was new flexible services to reconnect communities and bus back better. Since moving from Essex, I've lived in Ipswich for 40 years and am still learning. Recently, when I had elderly relatives to visit, I searched on community Facebook posts 
and spotted an out-of-town disabled accessible craft fair that looked suitable. I can only describe the day as beautiful. Hollersley is a special place. Because there is a prison and a school, there is employment, a Morrison's, a church, a garage, an RSPB sanctuary, and it is a hive of crafts, arts and people from just about everywhere. Everybody was kind and friendly. Lunch in the Shepherd and Dog pub was smashing, and there were more community-minded welcoming pupils. The air is clean, the countryside peaceful. I especially felt at home because I used to visit cousins who lived in one half of Boynton Hall in the 1960s, when my Uncle Bill used to be the cowman. The duck lady lived next door. There were sand martins, I recall. The tragedy is nowadays there are no easy transport links to Hollersley from the hospital and rail station in Ipswich or Woodbridge. Everybody I spoke to said that this would fill a real need, especially for elderly residents and those who do not drive. On Suffolk County Council's and First Bus's web pages, it appears one bus goes on such a zigzag tour of East Suffolk as to render it impossible to get from Ipswich to Holsley in a reasonable time. Community buses don't seem sufficient. Please, Suffolk County Council and Theresa Coffey, Ipswich deserves Holsley and vice versa. Please redesign the route so they don't either stop, as I was told, at Rock Barracks, MOD, Woodbridge at Sutton Heath, nor go on a two-hour zigzag, but carry on for the last four miles or so to the delightful community and landscape in Holsley. Silky David from Berry St Edmunds writes, I am ashamed that Berry St Edmunds could not be a better place to display the lovely gift of two murals depicting the story of St Edmunds, but above the bins behind the apex, on a street which is not attractive ever due to it being mostly the delivery entrances for ugly 1960s buildings, but at the moment made even more ugly and not inviting to stand and look due to all the building work. I understand it probably was not easy to find a wall to hang them on, but this is really so sad to hide them away like this. I thought maybe the small grass bit in front of the Abbey Gardens facing Angel Hill where the nativity scene usually is would be a good place. Or do they need to be protected from the rain? I for one am happy I stumbled across them today and was able to admire the work. A letter from Graham Day of Stowmarket. Sizzling fun at festival. Over the years, the Humboldt sausage has become mainstream across the UK, with many towns and villages holding sausage markets or festivals. However, the Harwich Sausage Festival would appear to be unique in its style. On a dull and damp November Saturday, we enjoyed our visit to the festival. Locating the starting point for the procession, the Stingray in Church Street, we heard the clanging sound of the bell and the sonorous voice of the town crier announced the festival. It was a delight to walk in the procession behind the sausage marshals carrying the Sausage on the Fork sign to the throwing contest course in Harwich Green. As well as the marshals, there was the Union Jack bedecked cameraman and a white-collared umpire wearing a wide white hat reminiscent of cricket. The contestants threw their projectile sausages and the champion of last year retained his crown with a throw of 110 feet. Proceedings were accompanied by music from a trombone player and the town crier returned to conclude the competition. 
Afterwards, a walk back to the car, taking the opportunity to sample different sausages at pubs along the way. A thoroughly enjoyable time at what is the most unique festival of its kind. As always, Harwich always comes up with something very different and well organised. Excellent indeed. Welcome to Chatterbox, a weekly sideways look at what's got you taking to the keyboard on social media this week. News about the plans at the new West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds got people tapping away at their keyboards. The multi-million pound plans are set to be improved next week and the proposals for the new facility have raised concerns from the public. Helen Canning raised an issue around where rescue helicopters would land at the new site. She said, what are the plans for the existing site once it's cleared? Also, no helipad seems a bit more than stupid. Maria Godfrey Clark said, ridiculous, access is still going to be a massive problem. It needs to be near the A14. Kevin Zedji added, just get on with it and build for the future, not just for now. Another story that got people chatting was more news on the next phase of works at the former Debenhams shop in Bury St Edmunds. Works could be heard on Monday morning from inside the empty shop and more rumours of Primark moving in were brought to readers' attention. Plans for an everyman cinema in the building's basement were approved in August. However, Nicola Bailey believes a third cinema in town is not the way to go. She said, what's the point of another cinema? The town needs another department store to cater for all needs. The shopping has seriously gone downhill. Jill Smith said, flatten the eyesore and build a mini park with trees, shrubs and plants. It's like a concrete jungle around there. And finally, strikes are to take place next week as Stowmarket production workers of Dulux Paint take action. Members of the union unite at Imperial Chemical Industries in Needham Road will strike on Wednesday, November the 30th and Thursday, December the 8th, which the union said could cause shortages of the company's most popular product, Dulux Paint. Lionel Robinson joked that these strikes could provide people an excuse for those putting off painting their homes. He said, there's a few people doing a sigh of relief after promising to redecorate. William Smith said, toilet rolls, Christmas turkeys, eggs and now paint. Priceless. Rowan Milne added, I think people can manage without a tin of paint for a few weeks. I hope the negotiations bears fruit for the workers. Simon Idell is estate manager for the Ruffham Estate near Berries and Edmonds. The Ruffham Estate has been growing Christmas trees for more than 60 years. It has previously supplied Christmas trees to 10 Downing Street and sells more than 4,000 trees a year from its Christmas shop at Blackthorpe Barn, which is open seven days a week until December. He writes in the East Anglian Daily Times, It is estimated that between 8 to 10 million Christmas trees are sold in the UK annually, the vast majority of which are grown in the UK. While East Anglia is famed for its rich arable land, it hasn't deterred some landowners to diversify into growing Christmas trees. Traditionally, the Christmas tree was cut and brought into the home on Christmas Eve and remained standing until the twelfth night. But in more modern times, we have elongated our celebration of Christmas well before Christmas Eve. This change in fashion has had big impact on the humble Christmas tree 
and is something that myself as a Christmas tree grower have had to adapt to and plan over the years. To understand this better, it's perhaps best to explain what goes into creating the perfect Christmas tree. Every Christmas tree starts its life from a seedling cultivated in a nursery where they are typically grown for about three to four years. We estimate that a Christmas tree will grow about one foot per year, but it is obviously depends on the species of tree, the weather and other environmental factors such as soil and nutrients. So typically the average household tree will have been growing for around 10 to 12 years, including its time as a seedling in the nursery before it is cut. As the trees start to mature, the trees are pruned into shape and we try to limit the speed that the top of the tree grows to create perfectly shaped bushy Christmas trees. But how has the modern trend of celebrating Christmas early affected the growing of Christmas trees? Well, aside from obviously cutting trees earlier to meet demand, growers have adapted what they have grown to suit consumer needs. Traditionally, the British Christmas tree was a Norway spruce, famed for its scent and perfect conical shape, but it has become notorious for losing its needles when standing for any length of time. This has meant that, in more recent times, greater and greater numbers of Nordman fir trees have taken over sales and now dominate the UK market as they are favoured for their greater needle retention. While the extension of Christmas celebration may have driven some consumers to artificial trees, many still prefer the authentic authenticity of the real tree and some of its greener credentials such as a lower carbon footprint and bring truly 100% recyclable. Whatever your choice of Christmas tree, it still represents the centrepiece of celebration at this wonderful time of year. A momentous year for the town. The census of a century ago in 1921 in Bury St Edmunds confirmed the tragic depletion of the population through the consequences of World War I and the Spanish flu pandemic as numbers fell from 16,785 recorded in 1911 to only 15,937. Bury and its environs were still reliant on agriculture, but this year saw a terrible drought so bad that the River Lark by Eastgate Bridge dried up. The influx of cheaper foodstuffs from the USA affected the prices farmers could get for their products and this situation continued until the outbreak of World War II. 1921 saw the inevitable slowing down of production of flax for linen for aeroplane wings at the Berry Flax Factory, which shut down permanently a couple of years later, the hand laundry eventually taking over the site. A major connection to World War I was the unveiling of the War Memorial on Angel Hill by General the Lord Horn in the form of a Celtic cross, the names of the fallen in a book of remembrance held in the cathedral. There were deaths of notable people this year. On February the 28th, Dr Henry Bernard Hodgson died. He was the first bishop of the newly created Diocese of St Edmundsbury and Ipswich in 1914. Also, George Jerry Milner Gibson Cullum of Hardwick. This cultured man, mayor in 1913, had the foresight to ensure his wonderful collection of art and books were bequeathed to Bury St Edmunds Council, though his home, Hardwick House, was demolished in 1925, 
through an entailment clause of his step-grandmother's will. To date, he is the only honoree mayor of the town, as he was not an elected councillor. But not all was doom and gloom. Bury saw the election of its first woman councillor in 1921, Eva Wollaston Green, the wife of local solicitor John Wollaston Green. Eva would later become the town's first woman mayor in 1927 and again in 1931. Eminent local artist Rose Mead painted her noble portrait. And uh, now two articles about anti-bullying schools. First of all, a buddy bench has been donated to a school by a house builder in recognition of anti-bullying week. Woolpit Primary Academy in Woolpit received the bench from David Wilson Homes for children to use when they need somebody to talk to. Last week was anti-bullying week, which is led by Anti-Bullying Alliance, with the aim of creating safe environments for children to learn, play and flourish without judgment or scrutiny. Sarah Clayton, head teacher at Woolpit Primary, said, The buddy bench has been a lovely addition to our early years environment. The children use it to read on or play together with their friends. Tom Wright, MD at David Wilson Homes, Eastern Counties, said they hoped the donation would encourage children to talk openly to each other and staff about how they're feeling. Also, students at Thurston Community College in Thurston near Berries and Edmonds wore odd socks on Monday, November 14th, in celebration of people's differences. It was Odd Socks Day and the start of Anti-Bullying Week, which are both organised by the Anti-Bullying Alliance. On Facebook, the school said assemblies during the week focused on how students and staff could work together to create a positive community where bullying was not tolerated. Students were encouraged to reach out if they or their peers needed support. Schools across the country get involved in Anti-Bullying Week. An idea celebrating the Platinum Jubilee has seen Brandon in Bloom going to the Guinness World Records for the longest line of pom-poms. The group beat a record set in 2016 by putting 45,736 together in a continuous line measuring 1.35 miles. Rachel Sobikoski, the group's head of horticulture, said volunteer Claire Watts came up with the idea to her group, Brandon Yarn Bombers, and it went from there. She said, the community was amazing. Everyone was keen to be involved. When the email from Guinness World Records came in, my partner, Paul, read it to me and I just burst into tears. It will be quite a while before it sinks in, just what the community of Brandon has achieved. What an officially amazing place we live in. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Nick, Jill, Liz and Pat, it's goodbye. Goodbye.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.